2: Good morning, Chris. Good to talk again. Podcast today, there's a lot of stuff on Ireland I'd like to talk about. We've had a lot of economic data releases out during the week, so I'd like to just take our listeners through the detail of that. Uh, There was a very interesting, long interview between Martin Wolf and Philip Lane, the chief economist at the European Central Bank, published in the Financial Times earlier in the week. Um, I'd like to give my views and I'd like to... Elicit your views on that, Chris. And um, there's also a lot going on in the United Kingdom at the moment. Uh, weak retail sales data this morning. Um, so uh, I think um, a quick run through the UK is also in order at this juncture. So if I if I could just start off with a quick run through the Irish data releases, um, as I say, a lot of it this week. Uh, retail sales for November. So we have now have the first 11 months of the year. And uh, the trend is the value of sales up by 6.6%. And that largely reflects inflation in the system uh, because the volume of sales declined by 1.3%. So in other words, people are being forced to spend more because of higher inflation, but are actually buying less slightly in quantitative terms. Um, My overall impression and reacting to those retail sales is that what we've seen in the last 12 months has been a significant decline in consumer confidence. And in fact, at the end of the year, consumer confidence was hovering at levels last seen in March 2020 at the outset of COVID. And prior to that, the second half of 2008, as the global financial crisis was starting to really bite the Irish economy. So against that sort of backdrop, I would have thought that the retail sales performance is pretty decent for Ireland. And, you know, it's it's holding up well, as is the rest of the economy in the face of these global headwinds that we'll be talking about a little bit later on. Uh, the second piece of data... Um, that I wrote about in our Substack account, uh, and that is the merchandise trade numbers for the first eleven months of the year, um, and on the merchandise export side, growth of twenty six point nine percent. So, in other words, the volume of, or, 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 or sorry, the value of exports. Um, increased by more than a quarter in the first 11 months of the year it's a phenomenal performance and if you look at the geographic breakdown of that um exports to Great Britain despite Brexit up by 20.9 percent Northern Ireland 32.2 percent the EU 27 almost 31 percent the United States almost 21 percent and the rest of the world um just over 31 percent so um As I've discussed before, 65% of merchandise exports in this country um, emanate from the chemical and pharmaceutical sector. And, you know, that sector continues to grow um, at rates of over 25%. But it's also interesting that the biggest and most significant indigenous export sector, agri-food, that's all, all up 22% in the first 11 months of the year. So the whole export model here, despite Brexit, is still growing very, very strongly. And, you know, that provided a very solid foundation for the economy in 2022. And I would expect that basically to continue in 2023. So that's the external trade picture, um, still a pretty upbeat one. Um, Then on Tuesday, Tuesday, we got the latest rate of inflation for December. And like everywhere else, the headline rate is coming down, fell from 8.9% in November to 8.2% in December. And Irish inflation peaked at 9.2% in um, October. So the headline rate starting to decline significantly. And if you look at the breakdown of that, um, energy is obviously the main contributor. You know, we've saw, we've seen home heating oil fell by fourteen point three percent during the month. Uh, petrol prices down twelve percent. Diesel prices down by over fourteen percent. So this this energy thing, as is the case everywhere else, is having a significant impact on the measured rate of inflation. Uh, the areas of concern would be food that I have spoken about for some months at this stage, um, really since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact that's had on the food supply chain, but also on fertilizer prices. Food price inflation up another 1% during December, 12% year-on-year growth at this stage. So that's pretty hefty stuff. and, And that really, I think, is going to be the pressure point in terms of the domestic cost of living debate in this country um, over the coming months. Uh, The other area of concern is um, mortgage interest costs up 22% year on year. And that's reflecting, obviously, what the European Central Bank has been doing with official interest rates since late July. And of course, there's more to come. Uh, There's an interview with Christine Lagarde in Davos this week. Um, pretty adamant that um, ECB will tighten interest rates further. And I get back to that in the context of what Philip Lane um, was saying in the Financial Times earlier in the week. So anyway, just to summarize the inflation story, um, the headline inflation rate is declining. And I think that will continue to be the case over the coming months as energy prices impact more and more. Uh, But as I say, food is the one that I think will become most politically sensitive um, and most significant from a cost of living perspective over the coming months. So that indeed is one to watch. Then um finally we got um house residential property prices. I keep saying house prices, and of course the CSO's release refers to apartments and houses. So it's residential property, but we got the numbers for um December or sorry November beg your pardon um the national average residential property price increased by 8.6% that's down from a peak of 15.1% in March prices in Dublin actually declined by 0.2% during the month that's the first decline we've seen in a long time and the annual rate of growth is at 7% back in February of 22 that peaked at 13.2%. And outside of Dublin, we're looking at an annual rate of increase of 9.8%. That's down from 17.1% in March. The increase of 0.2% in national average house prices in November, that was the lowest rate of increase since September 2020. So it's very clear that um, I think like residential property markets and indeed commercial property markets in most countries at the moment there is starting to we're starting to see significant downward pressure um it, i think it's worth pointing out in an Irish context that residential property prices here now at a national level are 3% above the peak that was seen in April 2007 dublin prices are 5.9% lower than the peak in february 07 and outside of dublin Average prices are 2.2% above the peak that was achieved in May 2007. So we've seen dramatic um, increase in house prices over since 2012, 2013. And I, I guess the interesting point about that is that, you know, unlike the last housing bubble, this has not been driven by mortgage credit. Um, and in fact, the mortgage market you know, is recovering, but it has been quite slow in recovering. And it's certainly not the big driver of uh, the massive increase we've seen in house prices. Uh, I, I guess it's a very much a demand supply equation. And um, I've had a number of conversations with a lot of business people over the last week, particularly, and the topic that keeps coming up is housing in terms of um, competitiveness of business, in terms of the competitiveness of the economy. And I think everybody but government at this stage recognises that housing is the number one crisis, is the number one challenge um, facing the country at the moment from a social perspective, from an economic perspective, and very definitely from a political perspective, because the reason why Sinn Féin are riding so high in the opinion polls, albeit there has been some easing in recent months. But the reason why they're so popular, particularly amongst young people, is because of the housing situation. And there is a, a basic uh, belief amongst young people that you know this government and its predecessors have been incapable of solving the housing crisis and as a view that actually they have contributed to this crisis by not adopting the right measures. Jim,
1: do you think those criticisms are fair?
2: Yeah, I, I do actually in some respects. I mean, I, I think NAMA um, has had a detrimental impact on On the housing market over recent years Uh, and that's not a popular view because many people out there believe NAMA is the best thing ever happened that's the national asset management agency they believe it was the best thing ever happened that it has delivered strong profits for the country etc. I don't believe that narrative I I in fact think that NAMA's treatment of developers um, after the crash I think was unduly harsh All developers, be they good, bad, indifferent, were all treated in the same way in a very hostile manner. Many developers were forced out of business. And whatever one thinks about developers, the one thing that is clear is that you do need a developer class to deliver housing supply. And between 2011 and 2020, basically, we delivered probably about a quarter or less than a quarter of the housing supply that's required in the country. And suddenly, of course, we go into 2021 when the economy starts to pick up quite strongly. Uh, There's just a basic imbalance between demand and supply. So uh, I I think the government's role and NAMA's role in inhibiting the supply of housing has been a huge problem. Um, I also think that there is no sense of urgency around housing at a government level, despite the rhetoric. I also think that there is no real strategic vision about... Why do you not? Why do you think the
1: government, when it's so obvious to everybody, you know, we're talking about it here, you're talking about the various business people that talk to you at the various events that you attend, the consultancy work that you do, uh, whatever the subject of that consultancy work is, or the topic of the speech that you're giving, The question always arises about housing, and you talk specifically, which I think is very interesting, about the issue of linking competitiveness of the economy as a whole with housing and how individual businesses and the overall economy, therefore, are being affected by the housing crisis. The housing crisis attracts headlines in a very critical way in the newspapers virtually every day. It's a topic of almost every pub conversation I have in Ireland these days. And everybody from all political walks of life talked to me about it. Why do you think, therefore, that you're sitting here saying that the government doesn't
2: get it? Or have I misinterpreted your words? No, you haven't, Chris. Um, You know, the reality is, if if you were a party in government at the moment, and if you wanted to be in government the next time, uh, there's one sure way of achieving that, and that is doing something meaningful on the housing side. Um, and, And I just don't get the sense from government that there is that sense of urgency. It is interesting over the last couple of weeks since... Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach again. Um, he is now chairing some sort of housing forum. And um, there is a view out there that he's actually sidelined to some extent the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. I'm not sure what the politics of that are or what the reality is. But I've, I've always argued, at least in recent times, that housing should become the responsibility of the Department of Taoiseach because only then might it get the sense of urgency that it requires? But I I think there's a basic lack of strategic vision here about where the housing market um, would be desired to be in, say, 20 years' time. And you look at the the things that are preventing that sort of vision from being achieved. But you create that strategic vision and you stick to it. You don't be diverted by the latest uh, piece of news on social media, whatever, which appears to me to be the key thrust of housing policy. It just goes all over the place, changes from week to week. So there is no firm strategic vision. Um, and I, I think... You, you, you understand my question? I do, I do. I, I, do. I just don't... Which I don't get Chris. Is,
1: which is why. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the kid's question asking the adult, why, why, yeah. why, all the time. You know, if it's so obvious, an issue, an electoral issue, that this government could lose the next general election on the
2: housing issue, Why don't they get it? I I just don't know, Chris, to be honest. Um, I scratch my head about it because I I think that some of the measures required are just politically... Yeah, well, some of the measures that are required are politically difficult. Um, I think the planning system needs to be changed dramatically uh, to speed up the delivery of housing. Um, I think the, the whole nimbyism thing has to be hit on the head because people cannot object to every possible development of housing, be it for uh, housing to sell or housing to rent. You know, people cannot just keep objecting to all of this. And it is interesting that Sinn Féin, People Before Profit and certain Labour TDs are the biggest objectors to housing developments around the country. That issue needs to be addressed. And of course, they are playing on popular um, the popular view in different areas as well. There's no doubt about that. But you need to address that. I think that you actually need to subsidize developers to make sure that, the, that housing is profitable enough to actually deliver. And that's incredibly unpopular.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: Well, that would, that would be toxic, wouldn't it? It would be totally toxic. Absolutely. But, you know, you've got to identify. And I talk to a lot of developers and I've seen the balance sheets of certain housing developments. I've seen the margins. And it's clear that many developers just don't believe that delivering residential property at the moment, particularly residential property to sell, is actually economically viable. So if government needs to intervene there, uh, so be it. If government needs to intervene to provide the financing to develop housing um, outside of the banking system. I think that needs to be looked at. About 40% of the price of a new house goes back to the state in various levies and taxes. So, for example, if you um, eliminate or reduce the VAT rate to zero on housing um, and you then get the developer building the house, to sign a certificate of fair value so in other words this is what I can deliver the house for this is the margin I've built into that and the developer commits to that and then the house when it's sold on to the ultimate person who buys it at that price once that happens the state then steps in and recompenses the developer for the VAT content so it's a lot of stuff like that. I think we need to look at seriously um, redeveloping vacant properties all over the place, but particularly in the towns and villages and indeed in the cities around the country. There's a lot of business premises with vacant residential uh, property overhead. All of this stuff needs to be looked at. I think... There's a package of about 20 things, um, a lot of which, as we say, are very, very politically difficult and toxic. But a lot of stuff like that needs to happen to deliver what is required. And if it isn't, number one, the political price that will be paid by the current generation of politicians in government, I think, will be severe. Uh, But I go back to the point I made earlier on about housing should be seen um as a key element of national competitiveness and if you are the IDA for example trying to attract jobs into this country housing is a huge impediment at the moment i'm
1: i'm hearing from you jim that there are a number of very uh, interrelated and complicated factors that mean that the government is not uh, tackling this issue in, in a in a serious uh, productive way one is that it's just too hard Uh, It requires tackling of vested interests. It requires thinking about its own revenues. It requires strategic thinking, which politicians all around the world are not very good at. Um, And uh, it it really is just in the too hard to do box from a whole host of perspectives, which has resonance from other jurisdictions, of course, not least here in the UK. But um, you sound very pessimistic about their ability to just do anything about this issue.
2: Would that be right? That will be correct, Chris. I'm pretty pessimistic about it. I, I fear we'll be on this podcast, hopefully, in five years' time. Um, having the podcast, hopefully, not hopefully discussing the ongoing housing crisis, but I fear we will. Um, I, 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 just, I, I just don't get the sense that there is the political bravery out there to do all of the things that need to be done. And when you think about how the Irish government reacted in the face of COVID, you know, there's a lot of stuff happened then that ideologically, I, I guess I would have had severe problems with in the past, as in the level of state intervention, basically bailing out and subsidizing everybody. But in an emergency like COVID, obviously that sort of approach was required. The rule book had to be torn up. And I think housing is in the same category now. Uh, the rule book has to be torn up. Government has to do absolutely everything um regardless of how popular or unpopular it is to make sure that there is a proper delivery because um and I know you, you may disagree with me to some extent on this and there's a bit of debate about it, but I, I think you know the key way to solve this problem is supply.
1: Yeah, I I don't disagree that supply is an issue. My my point about that is that you might be surprised at just how how um uh, unresponsive prices are to housing supply. That you might find that there's latent demand out there from both Irish current Irish residents, and indeed non-Irish residents. The success of the Irish economy means that you suck in an awful lot of people. And I think that if you had a a better supply of housing, you'd, you'd suck in a lot more people, actually, such is the success of the Irish economy. But the other point that I would make is that if it's too hard at the same time as being so blimmin' obvious to the current administration, any administration, Sinn Féin or whoever it is, is going to face the same obstacles... Do they have the political capital and the political will to tackle all of these very, very complicated issues? So it's really a two-part question. First of all, you've got to identify the steps that you would take to solve this very complicated issue. And that is a big exercise in itself, which could go wrong. You could do the wrong things. You have to do the things that are most effective. And secondly, do you have... That capital and will to take on, in particular, the vested interests that permeate this sector, permeate the economy, actually, in various ways. And I suppose the, the the overarching question is will Sinn Féin be capable of honoring their promise of solving the property crisis? And is there a sullen sense in government? and This is a, yet another question which just pops into my head. Is there a sullen sense in government that this is just too hard and that any administration would find it? too hard and let's give the shinners a go and show them up for what they are because they're not going to be able to solve it either
2: well ono bren has convinced many people out there that he has the solutions and that if given the opportunity he would make progress um i i think are you convinced by his proposals well, I think Sinn Fein and government will throw a lot of money at the delivery of social and affordable housing. Um, and of course, and, and the resources are there at the moment to do that. Whether we have the capacity to deliver that sort of housing is another issue. And that's why, you know, we need to look at bringing external workers in and external construction companies in to help the delivery because there is a capacity constraint. But I think Sinn Fein would throw a lot of money at social and affordable. But, of course, the issue is, um, and this is another problem, there's a sort of a silo mentality in relation to housing. The housing market is a broad market. It is social housing. It's affordable housing. It is normal, you know, built-to-buy housing or owner-occupier housing. It's the rental market. You've got to address all facets of that market uh, to deliver a response. And I fear that Sinn Féin's approach would very much be focused on just one part of the market while ignoring the rest. I mean, there's a huge issue on the rental side here as well. I mean, rents are growing year and year by 10.6% at the moment. They're up about 98% since 2016. I mean, there's a dramatic Rental problem more so than an owner occupier problem at the moment. The rental market to me is the biggest issue. The cost of rent, the lack of rental accommodation, and um, the treatment of private landlords, for example, is acting as a major disincentive. And I thought the government in the budget in September was going to introduce significant measures to help and to incentivize private landlords to remain in the market and in fact bring new ones into the market but that didn't happen and the official data showing that we continue to see a decline in the number of private landlords and private landlords when interviewed about why they're exiting the market number one um, their taxed fully on everything they earn and secondly the level of restriction and regulation in the market including um, rent pressure zones is just making it unattractive to be a private landlord and indeed private landlords are demonized and you see that the problem again the political one is that if you're doing anything that is seen to be helping landlords that is politically toxic as well. So unfortunately. Um, a lot of the solutions are just politically difficult and we do not have a political class at the moment with the bravery, um, to actually, you know, take those unpopular decisions. Um, I, I think, you know, Sinn Fein, um, I, I'd like at some stage to see Sinn Fein getting an opportunity to see if they could solve it because I think the politician that solves this housing crisis ultimately, uh, will go down in the annals of folklore. But I just fear we don't have that type of politician at the moment.
1: We'll take one issue in particular, which is which is common to both the UK and Ireland. And I want to talk about that in a second in the little bit of time we got left to us. NIMBYism, the fact that every time a developer does propose building some houses and or apartments, we get uh, a huge number of objections, uh, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of objections, And the planning system in both jurisdictions is clearly not fit for purpose. Will Sinn Féin have the wherewithal, the ability, the political capital, the drive, the will, to actually build stuff in places where the residents don't want it built? Will they be able to tackle nimbyism,
2: do you think? Well, the the point is, Chris, that Sinn Féin are a key part of that nimbyism. I mean, Sinn Féin politicians, including in the area where I live now, are instrumental in objecting to the development of property so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that, uh, and uh, am I being way too cynical about this? Because from Sinn Féin's perspective at the moment, the one thing that they would not like to see happening is a solution to the any partial solution to the housing crisis ahead of the next general election. Because if that happens, Sinn Féin would suffer in the opinion polls if government was seen to be making progress. So th- there's a strong vested interest from a Sinn Féin perspective, to object to everything and to be driving this nimbyism around the place. And it's not just Sinn Féin. As I say, there's a Labour politician in the north side um, who has an incredible track record in terms of objecting. We have People Before Profit. Uh, I mean, um, a People Before Profit TD down in Dunleary um, was quoted objecting last week to a development down in South County Dublin um, saying it would... um, this development would destroy the Victorian grandeur of the area. I think it's down in Monkstown or someplace. But when you see this sort of rubbish going on, you, you kind of realise... Um, you know you're not going to make progress so is is it possible that in government Sinn Féin would do a total reversal and stop objecting to all of these developments and bring on development as quickly as possible Um, I'd like to see that happening Um, of course then you ask yourself the question would Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael then take the position that um, Sinn Féin are holding at the moment as serial objectors I don't know it's it's politically complicated
1: Yeah, and uh, what you're suggesting there is quite remarkable, is that that, uh, there are certain factional interests in Irish politics following a scorched-earth policy, policy, which is to keep the housing crisis going, if you like, or to at least prevent any measures being taken to alleviate the housing crisis so that they can benefit politically. That's quite quite an extraordinary uh, thing to think about, actually. But but it's it's not unique to Ireland, is it, Chris? No, no, absolutely not. And and I wanted to talk a lot about the UK today. And on this podcast, we're running out of time, we are going to be quite strict with ourselves this year on, on time. Uh, at least we're, we're going to try and almost certainly fail. So I'll just draw attention to one aspect of the UK and hold over the other things I want to talk about to our next podcast. And I want to draw people's attention, draw your attention to a recent article by one of my favorite uh, economics writers of the moment, Chris Charles of the FT. I've mentioned him many times and he talks about the problems facing the UK. He doesn't do it across four big blog posts, which is what I've done recently on our Substack site. And he talks about it in a very simple way, but very effective. And he says there are three things uh, really, really affecting the UK economy at the moment. Number one is Brexit, and we could talk about that all day. The second one is that there is no money for social government spending. Austerity has really reached its limits in the UK, and the public sector can no, no longer do more with less, which is what it's been asked to do for at least the last 15 years. And of course, that's linked to the fact that the UK economy hasn't grown by very much. And so that hasn't generated the tax revenues for growth. And the two things really affect each other. But the third thing, which relates to the discussion that we've just had about Ireland and Irish housing, that affects the UK economy badly, in Chris Charles's view, and also in Chris Johns' view, is the ability to get anything built. And that's the planning system in general and NIMBYism in particular. And the, the, the weird thing in the UK, which I wonder is a bit different to Ireland, is that there's no strong vote here. There's no strong voice for changing any of all of this, that not just the uh, getting anything built, but there's no constituency for changing the Brexit settlement. Um, there's no constituency for doing something strategic about growth to generate the uh, tax revenues necessary to fund the public sector properly. There's no voice for it. But on, on either side or any side of the political spectrum, it's, it's, it's very bleak, it's weird, but I think it, it's, it's very, very accurate. But in the context of the property discussion that we've just had about Ireland, it, the, the, the dysfunction in the planning system and the nimbyism that is rife, because you just can't get anything built in this country now. And if, if you do, it takes you years often to get through the planning system uh, to get anything done. And that's a real, real obstacle to growth, to solving these social issues, to actually getting anything done. So, yeah, there is there is some commonality. Jim, um, I'm going to shut up about the UK there. There's lots more I want to talk about. but I'm going to hold it over to our next podcast. Uh, So great to talk today and we'll pick it up again very, very soon. Super, Chris. Thank you very much.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.
1: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes.